This is Show Up as a Leader, a show from People Forward Network, helping you maximize your positive impact on the world by becoming your best, fully authentic self. Hey, everyone. You know, we all probably know the health benefits of staying in shape through physical fitness. But did you know that mental fitness is equally as important, if not more? We have to train our cognitive muscles to be adaptive and resilient so that we can thrive in this life's unrelenting pace of change. That's why I was so excited to sit down with self-proclaimed brain geek coach and I think another one of my sisters from another mister, Wendy Swire. She is an author, speaker, professor, leadership consultant, and she works a lot with C-suite clients and others. And she has helped thousands of people better understand their brains to create laser-focused results by moving from what she calls their saboteur brain to their sage brain. And we talked about so many great things you're going to want to take notes on. Something to listen for, she talks about three key things that we need to know and understand about our brain. One of the big things to recognize is our brains today are actually not designed for modern life, so wait till you hear about that. She also talks about that we don't want to think about getting rid of some of these habits or patterns, but creating new ones. And wait till you hear how she talks about the most important conversation that we have that we need to pay attention to. There's so much richness in this conversation. I think you're going to take a ton out of it personally and professionally. You refer to yourself as the brain geek coach, which just makes my heart so, so happy. So can you talk about why you call yourself the brain geek coach and specifically why we need to be paying attention to the brain, even if you have no intention of being a neuroscientist. Let me just put a caveat. I am not a neuroscientist, neuropsychologist. I actually have a financial services background. I came out of Wall Street. I'm more of an analyst. But what's happened is since about 2007, when I first just started learning a little more about the brain, I was hooked. And I said, this is not only so interesting but it's so applicable to everything in leadership, as a parent, in how you manage yourself. It just has so many broad applications. So I just started studying neuroscience and studying neuroscience. I formed the DC Neural Leadership Group. Now I work closely with neurosciences. I am a geek, a proud kind of nerd to begin with. I just love to learn. I'm a voracious learner. But I'm known as someone who can take brain science and explain it in a way that's practical, that everyone can get something out of it. The more you know, you just know a little bit about your brain, it just leads to tremendous insights and it can be super helpful. So I kind of brand myself that way, but people who know me know that I'm obsessed with the brain. I swear we're sisters from other mister because I think that's the same thing for me when I first started reading into it. It started to make sense about like, for example, in the world of behavior change and wellness, why incentives don't work. It starts to make sense why our traditional approaches to employee engagement and recognition don't work sometimes. And I'm obsessed with normalizing the messiness of being human. And part of that, I think when people do have language and they can understand, oh, like this is how my brain is wired or oh, I'm not a bad person, or this person isn't doing this intentionally. It's in our DNA or wiring. And I think when we understand that, then it helps us figure out 
a path forward. So let's go there. You call it Applied Neuroscience 101, but what are some of the key things that we need to understand about our brains that will be helpful for us to navigate this chaotic world we're in right now? Okay, I think there's three I'm going to offer up. The first one is, no, you are not crazy with all the stress and the tension and the pressure and this changing and the 24-hour news cycle. If you feel a higher level of uncertainty, if you feel like your brain's like it's a little fried from jumping on the phone to checking the text and Slack and this and that and picking up your kids and 10, 20 projects, and you're not alone. The brain is not designed. Our human brain you know, descended from Homo sapiens, is only about 200,000 years old. And that design has not changed much. It is not fitted for modern life. The brain by design is suited and fitted for short-term acute stress. So the saber-toothed tiger is coming after you. You run, you fight it, and then you rest. And then, you know, just like with mammals, so same kind of thing. Someone's coming after you in the cave, you go forage, this and that. That's what we were designed to have, these really intense periods, and then come back to homeostasis. Well, what's the problem? We're on all the time. Our brains aren't resting. So the constant level of stress and worry and anxiety, our brains aren't well-functioned for it because the brain has a built-in negativity bias to keep you alive and keep you safe. So you are wired to worry and to be negative. That's your wiring. So you have to just think about our modern life, our VUCA crazy world. It's working against your brain science. There can be this tendency to want to fight that or tendency to be like, well, you should just be positive or you shouldn't worry. And I think the more we fight our natural tendency, the more it almost digs in harder. And one of the things that I've tried to do is to remind ourselves that's our brain doing its job to keep us safe. So when we go to worst case scenario or worrying, it's thank you for doing your job. Thank you for trying to keep me safe. So it's like acknowledge it. Like, thank you. You're doing your job. Like, hey, my brain is working the way it's supposed to. If I was, you know, it was 400 years ago. I think acknowledging yeah. that is helpful because there can be so much toxic positivity in this VUCA world where people just want to pretend that things aren't there. Or like you should be happy or you should be positive or you shouldn't worry. But if you worry, that's a good normal sign that your brain's functioning. And it's what do you do with that? I love that. You know, hey, you are wired to scan for threats 24 hours a day. So your listeners right now have an ADT alarm system going in a deep limbic portion of your brain that's there to keep you safe and pump out chemicals to protect you. So you're absolutely right, but this is the design we have. Now you're not gonna get rid of those worry and safety connections in your brain. You have to create new ones. So people say, can I just get rid of them if I'm positive and I do this? I was like, no, you don't override them. You have to create new practices. So I think the second key thing is what are you doing to Give your brain that little bit of a pause. Daydreaming is a good thing. That's the default network. Are you taking breaks in the day? I'm an executive coach. I'm always asking my clients, take those breaks. That is not selfish. It's good for brain health. The reason you're tired at 3 p.m. is, you know, you're sitting there working on the computer all day. You haven't really used your body. You've your, you used your brain and your brain's consumed 20 to 30% of the oxygen and glucose your brain is just sucking the energy out of you. So you've got to feed it and fuel it and give it breaks. And taking breaks is not 
a waste of time. It's actually what's going to give you better peak cognitive performance. So that would be the second really practical tip. The third tip is drink, drink, drink water. Your brain is 70% water. You are probably dehydrated, even my athletes. So if you want, again, to be the best leader you can, show up as a leader, be engaged, be innovative, be positive, you've got to think of your brain and train it and treat it like an athlete would. And one of the things is water, food, sleep, health, all the stuff that, you know, mom and dad and grandma told you, get some fresh air, take breaks. That stuff is great for brain health. In some ways, it's common sense. It's not just brain health. It's our general health and well-being. But I do think it's so interesting because I know I've been guilty of this and I've had to learn how to create systems that remind me to take breaks or build in reflective time during the day because I've noticed that when I go, 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 I hit a wall or I'm not thinking as clearly or I go to write a blog or to write an email and it's not as clear as it could be or it's taking me longer than it could. And how often do you hear, oh, you had a great idea in the shower or driving or, you know, changing up your scenery. And so I think there is something to be set for that. And everyone's different figuring out when does that need to be for you, depending on what your day looks like. I also appreciate what you said that it's not about make these go away or pretend they're not there because that myelin, that neural pathway has already been written. We have to write new ones. We have to create new ones. It's not make this go away. It's not going to go away. It's how do we write over that in a way that starts to become a new normal but that's always going to be kind of lingering in the background. So what are some of the ways that we can start that journey to change our thought patterns and to rewrite a new narrative that serves us better? Yeah, it's just probably the most powerful question there is. How do you change the script of your thoughts? So what I always tell my clients is the most important conversation you're going to have today is the one between your two ears. That is the most important conversation. People call it self-talk. People call it inner critic, inner gremlin. We can call it whatever you want. In the methodology of mental fitness that I am trained in, that I use with my clients, and I use it personally, I'm trying to increase the ratio of positive thoughts, literally the thoughts that I'm putting in my head compared to negative. Positive thoughts, joy, appreciation, gratitude, creativity, innovation, all the good stuff that we want. And negative is, you know, judging others, blaming, being really harsh on ourselves. But there's all the other ones. So you literally are in a different segment of a different network of your brain, depending on those thought patterns. And the key is intercepting when you are moving into what I call, based on the work of Shirzad Chumin, positive intelligence, we call them saboteurs, saboteur networks. You literally have to catch yourself and convert it and change it. So it's real-time work. It's real, real-time work, and it's often very somatic work that you do in your body with interoception. It's also work that you can track, okay? So this stuff is practical. This is not, wow, I'd really like to be a more positive person. No, actually, when you are with someone and you are triggered and judging them, how are you going to catch yourself? And then in real time, you take a breath, you rub your fingers, you touch something, you do something. Actually, when you use your senses, it will activate a different mode, a different network in the brain to move you away from this default mode network. And then from there, you can convert and change it to that positive. We call it a sage network of the brain. So can you give another example of where you commonly see with your clients where the saboteur brain kicks in and what do they do to then leverage what you call the sage brain? So in the methodology that I train my clients in, 
the first thing we do is you've got to understand what your judge is and what triggers it. The judge is sort of universal to everybody, but we also have other accomplice saboteurs. Are you a perfectionist? Are you a stickler? Are you a people pleaser? That's a saboteur. Are you a hyperachiever, which I am, and a controller? You know, So you have to understand the pattern, and there's an assessment that your listeners can take that will help you identify what those saboteurs are. So the first is one, let's recognize the patterns. Two is when you notice it, how do you catch it? Well, you catch it by often by what's happening. Your heart's pounding, your stomach. Oh, I have to meet with Tom and Susan. I know I've had challenges with them. I'm very in tuned. I get ready for the meeting, but I notice where is the trigger going to be? And then in real time, the easiest one we teach people, we can do it now unless your listeners are driving, is you know rub two fingers together with such a tension that you can feel the fingertip ridges. Just rub two fingers. That tactile sensation, very soothing, calming the sympathetic nervous system. But if you do that, you can start to intercept. So my favorite is breathing, rubbing those fingers, wiggling your toes. Sounds silly. Simple, simple, simple. But we've got to, these are techniques to um, physically stop those negative saboteur thought patterns and they work. I've used them myself now for over two years. These techniques actually really work. Well, I, I love that you make it so tactical and simple and that you're bringing the body into it because we, we use the vernacular very similar. We talk about body wisdom and how many of us don't leverage our physical body as a path to self-awareness. If you keep it all in your head, it reminds me of like improv comedy. They talk about whole brain activity. Like there's something to be said for if it stays in our head, we're only going to get so far, but when we start to engage the rest of our body and we have that mind-body connection, if you will, it does make a huge difference. So we have an exercise similar where we have people walk through like saying things that has them be in like judge or thinking. And as they say it, notice what happens. And it's so fascinating. I've been leading this exercise for gosh, 15 years. And every time I do it, it's like clockwork. Like the first judgy type statement, I get a tightness in like my lower gut. The next one, it moves up to my rib cage. It moves up to my chest. It starts to move its way up. And so I know for me during the day, if my jaw's tight or I have a knot in my shoulder, it's like, whoo, my body is talking to me. It's, am I listening? And, but what I love that you said that it is not just, ooh, my body's talking to me, but then I love the finger, rub the fingers or use that. Not just, hey, I'm my body's telling me something, I should shift my thinking, but then use your body to also help you shift your thinking. That's like, that's yeah. game changing. I'm going to try it. I love it. Yeah, it does work actually. And I think the key thing I want to say is for your leaders who are listening, you know, leadership is embodied. It's in your body. You wear it, you carry it. Absolutely. And lots of beautiful research on that. It's how people feel around you emotionally. It's the words you choose. It's your purpose. So it's not just, I'm really the smartest person. I have the most strategic or you know, operational savvy, it is really a much more holistic. And I think we're going to see more, our better and better leaders understand this and they get it and they use this information. And again, a lot of it is just learning, get really curious. Why am I reacting this way? Why do I keep, you know, why am I judging this person? That oh, That's not a good idea. That will never work. Why not go in with more curiosity you lean into four or five other methodologies, which is I'm going to have a lot of empathy towards this person. They're having a challenging time. There's a reason why they are challenging me on the project or on the tech aspects. I mean, this was just a real live one this morning. 
with a client and he knows this methodology and he started the meeting and he was challenged and he goes, oh no, I just went right back into my judge. So we practice having a lot of empathy for his tech partner and what they're going through. And empathy is a superpower, empathy towards yourself, empathy towards others. You know, that's the kind of thing that you can shift that will strengthen your mental fitness muscles in that ratio. It's interesting because I think as you start looking at whether you want to pick up a Harvard Business Review article or the latest and greatest leadership book that you know comes out, you keep seeing this pattern of that the future and this VUCA world demands not just empathy, but demands curiosity, demands our ability to actually shift our mindset. There's a book that came out recently from McKinsey and Company, Deliberate Calm, and they talk about the adaptability paradox where they talk about in those exact moments when like this VUCA world, this volatile world is needing us to shift our mindset, is needing us to lean to curiosity, is leading us to, to use your language to leverage that sage brain. We are wired, like you said, for 400 years ago, we are wired for that saboteur to kick in and we can't do it. And so it's like this paradox. And they also talk about that we can't always be in this adaptive zone, right? We can't be going all the time. We need those rests and break. And so when we're in more of a familiar zone, how do we recognize that and leverage that as our recharge, as our regroup? That's the time we can learn. That's the time where we can accelerate our performance. But we don't do that. And we're on we're on cognitive overload and we're scattered so much. In this hectic world, like it sounds easier said than done, but so many leaders that you work with and so many leaders I work with, it, it's the do more with less. We've laid people off, do more, do more, do more, do more. And they feel like they need to sacrifice themselves rather than asking their team to do it. But it actually has a really big cost to thinking that way and operating that way. So what I will tell leaders like this, and my, my clients are super smart, senior executives, C-suite, brilliant, hardworking, you know, amazing people. And I will say, look, and many of them do have a good sports practice. They're physically fit. They get that. But I'll say, we all understand the importance of physical fitness, right? We learned that as a kid. We went to gym and we know we're supposed to eat our vegetables and we go to the workout or do yoga, whatever it is. Mental fitness is no different. You have to train your brain. Your brain's an organ. You must train it. If you don't, it will go to this negative, it will go to the places that it wants to go. The yogis call that monkey brain. So, you know, it will wander, it will jump. So if you value all of these things that you say that you want more of, you got to put in the work. It's like anything. Now, the good news is using the wonderful power of neuroplasticity. It takes six weeks, I'm going to say six weeks of intensive, about 30 minutes a day to do these exercises and these practices, to start to have the new dendrites wiring. Six weeks of continuous commitment to practice. It's like anything. You want to learn to play golf. You want to learn coding. You name it, right? It just takes some time. But now you get into habit formation. And as an executive coach, I'll say, you're in choice. I'm just going to tell you the science. And you go back to your first question. Why do I love the science? Because this is the science. And this is what is happening in your brain. Now, what choices do you want to make? And a lot of clients are just stuck in a lot of you know poor habit loops and they don't know and they're scared or whatever. So if there's curiosity, we can start there. But a lot of times I'll just say, look, let me just explain to you, this is where you're going in your brain. This is why these habits, these patterns are happening over and over. Okay. You are always in choice as a coach. And our leaders who are listening, 
there's only so much you can do. A lot of your employees are in choice about whether they want to do this type of mental fitness work. I love it. You talk about that we're in choice and sometimes we don't realize we're in choice, but we are. So I'm super grateful that you're letting people take the assessment. So reminder, everybody go to the episode page because Wendy's providing really, really cool tools uh, to do this work. But I think there's also value in creating a core and common language Like you said, whether it's judge or, you know, we, we reference conscious leadership groups like above the line or below the line, but giving whatever it is giving people and teams core and common language that they can reference to go, oh, I was totally on the judge path or oh, I was totally below the line there. Or, My gremlin took over whatever vernacular works mm-hmm. for your environment where you can name it and also have tools to get you back to it because that also creates a support structure. Because one of the things that I've learned in coaching and is you can't take a changed person and put them into an unchanged environment and expect that things mm-hmm. are going to last very long. And so coaching one leader or two leaders without looking at it from a systems perspective and the wraparound systems that support and reinforce the work they're doing is so critical. And I think that gets missed. It's like, oh, here, just give, give some coaching to some leaders or give some coaching to some individuals. And they don't think about all the other aspects that have to wrap around it. Yeah, that's a really powerful comment. Really powerful comment. Leaders, what are you doing about that wraparound culture? Because what you do reverberates. And some people say, well, I'm only just a new VP or I'm just a senior director. I'm like, no, everyone can lead at different levels. So I really appreciate how you're taking a systems view to change management, creating a culture that you want. And I would say my most successful clients are the ones who are always like, I just want to learn. I know I can get better. I haven't figured this out yet. You know, again, build on your strengths, but what's the, what are the superpowers that you're going to draw upon to be that change agent? A lot of times we're doing a parallel process where we're doing developmental work or presenting the science or trying to help get a common language for a team and doing work at that level plus individual level, right? So going back and forth and there was a team yesterday and I knew this was going to happen. You've got some of them that are open to learning, open to growing. And then you've got others that you can tell their threat signals are going off and they're like, well, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. It sounds like we're trying to fix something that is broken and, or I don't like this language. And you could just see who was getting triggered. And I just sat back and just took notes. It's just so interesting to watch the dynamic where some are like, oh, this is great. This is going to be helpful. And some are completely like, well, why do you use this? Like they start picking apart like the science or they want to pick apart the wording or they're trying to pick something because you can tell they're deeply uncomfortable. But I'm curious, what do you do in those situations? Because that happens all the time. Well, in our vernacular of positive intelligence, that is a stickler, someone who's a perfectionist. It could be a hyper-rational, a person who just always has to have the facts, information, are going to question and question. And I think you know this, I'm sure from your work, that these are wonderful qualities. If someone wants the data or wants to be a little skeptical or why is this going to work? But what happens is once they are in a judge or a fear state, it gets overblown. It gets misused or abused. There's a couple options. I mean, obviously, I'm sure you worked on building trust with the team and it all starts with kind of trust. But some of it is how can you build upon the person's strengths? Like these are really excellent analytical questions. Maybe we can go offline and talk more about them or great. I'm really glad you're, you're asking a good question. Why change it? So how do you convert it to a positive? And sometimes there is going to be somebody and you have that gift of empathy. Like this is hard. 
this was hard for you. This was probably hard for the people who are eager. And so again, my default is often just a lot of radical empathy. I know this is hard. We're introducing some stuff and you're concerned about the time, or maybe you've got to have some group meetings. So I will always fall to empathy. And then if the person really is a challenge, and I have it too, and you know, my work, I will have a lot of empathy towards myself. I'm trying, I'm doing the best I can. And again, leaders, you, you know, there's only so much you can do. You have to have a lot of empathy because there's a lot of people really walking around with just terrible saboteur energy and judges. And energy is contagious. We know that. I hear a lot. We have a lot of changes going on. I need my team to be on board. And I think, you know, if we can normalize that, okay, these people aren't trying to be difficult. These people probably don't even think they're being difficult. They don't even realize it, but their threat responses are going off. And so if you, you think about change management, how often do we look at the processes and we look at the systems and we forget the people aspect? And it's like, well, what are you asking them to do? Is it in a familiar zone or is it in this adaptive unknown zone? While the change might be good, is it bumping them up against a threat response? And how can you normalize, acknowledge, and walk beside them rather than getting frustrated, you know, assume they're resisting, getting judgy, because that's what happens is, oh, they're not on a board. I'm so frustrated. I don't know what to do with them. When we want to tap out is actually when we need to lean in. And I think it's counterintuitive. Yeah. And what's stopping you from wanting to lean in? That's your role. That's your job. So are you comfortable with the discomfort as well? Yeah. We got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> Comfort with discomfort is almost a prerequisite. For me, I always say it's table stakes right now as a leader. Yeah, It's not even optional. For the same reason, I think having some type of mental fitness or pausing practice is not even optional because people are walking around cognitive capacity overload. They can't take on anymore. So you have to encourage people to pause if you want to get the best out of their brains. What is something that people could do right now to start to help manage the cognitive overload that many people may not even realize they're experiencing, but it's at the source of so much of the stress or the struggle. Since I've learned the brain science, this is what I do. The first is if you are working a long day and you come home and you're cooking dinner and you know, whatever you're with your family, and then you're getting back online at eight o'clock at night and working until 12 o'clock, that's junk drawer work. Your brain is fatigued. You're not doing your best work. What happens is you write that email, then you got to rewrite it. Did I send it? You know, you got to check it three times. It's just completely counterproductive. So I tell clients, if it's urgent, 100%, but just recognize what you're doing is junk drawer work in terms of brain science. So how do you wean yourself? How do you get to bed a half an hour earlier? The number one thing I think people can do is sleep based on brain science. Get more sleep. I love movement. I love exercise, all of that diet, all of that stuff's important. But at a minimum, your brain is more active when you're sleeping than when you're awake. It's consolidating. It's cleaning up the junk. It's trying to figure out what's important, what's not. Should I pay attention to this conversation? What about this email? So we could do another hour just on sleep. You've got to get sleep, good quality sleep. And you are swimming upstream against society to do that and recognize that you've got to prioritize it big time. You have to say, this is really, really important. And just remember, you are competing against multi-billion dollar companies with very powerful algorithms. You are in a battle with them for your attention, and they are probably going to win. TikTok, on the face of it, is going to win. <laughs> 
It's designed to win. Very smart people. My Netflix last night, I watched a movie. I was just going to watch one and then something else came up. I'm like, oh, and I know better. So again, just understand that. So I will tell clients, I want one day a week. Can you shut down earlier? Just one, not all the nights. What one night a week can you commit to powering down and getting to bed a little bit earlier and doing some reading or some writing, something gentle and calm on your brain. It's called sleep hygiene. It's as important as physical, you know, as personal hygiene. We brush our teeth, we wash our hair every day. Yeah, sleep hygiene. And if I can get them down to one night and just like, how do you feel the next day? People are like, wow, unbelievable. If you've got kids, it's really, really important for learning consolidation. Yeah. I think sometimes we underestimate, you know, sleep. And I, I know what was interesting is I tried to be good about it. And I didn't realize how chronically sleep deprived I must have been pre-pandemic. And when the pandemic first hit and like initially like stuff's getting on pause and contracts are getting on pause. And all of a sudden I had a little bit more time in my day. And I was like, well, I'm just going to sleep in a little bit later. Instead of getting up at 4 a.m. to do a workout, I'm going to sleep till six and do a workout later or something. And I think the first three months of the pandemic, I probably was sleeping 10 or 11 hours a night. And then it finally like got to you know a normal level. Yeah. For your listeners, just experiment another half an hour. You got to get rid of the blue blockers. You got to power down. Just see how you feel the next day. Because what's so interesting, sleep to me is just a hidden superpower. There's a lot of great books on the market now, new bestsellers on sleep. Um, but for me, just what you said about being a cognitive capacity overload in your story, yeah, just experiment with it. Like you would, oh, I'm going to go on a try this juice or whatever, you know, I'll try going this orange theory or something, whatever you're going to try, I'll try training for a marathon. Whatever you're doing differently, just mix it up with your sleep and notice and the business case and the ROI on sleep is phenomenal yeah. for your brain. I remember once, a, once upon a time, I used to use this stat years ago, but they were talking about sleep deprivation that was chronic in so many of employees that people are coming to work with the cognitive impairment equivalent of if they had slammed a six pack of beer before they walked. There. Correct. Correct. So the other thing, you know, you're a leader. Are you sending your messages at 10 o'clock at night? I tell my leaders at a minimum, Unless, okay, the CEO or someone calls and write, you know, absolutely. But unless some, you tell me someone's going to pass away from it, okay, then why are you doing that? Are you role modding it? And clients are like, well, I like, I do my best thinking or I do, okay, okay, fine. Then at least put them on a schedule where those emails don't go out till six in the morning or seven. So you set an example as a leader. So you lead by example. Of course, your people are watching you. Yeah. Or you communicate, hey, this is what I do. My best thinking, do not respond. I don't expect you to respond. I don't want you to respond. You know, you're communicating. I'm honoring how I work best. How do you work best? If you're able to, not all environments can do that, but love it. All right. So Wendy, I am dying to know this, given the work that you do, speaking of the saboteur brain, I know that we all still can get in the habit of telling ourselves these self-limiting stories, right? The brain trying to protect ourselves where we keep ourselves safe and small. And so what I would love if you're willing to share is what is the self-limiting story that you still tell yourself sometimes and when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader in your life? Oh man, I have quite a few. <laughs> We're all work in progresses, but I've been doing some more advanced work with teams as well as out in Silicon Valley, some tech companies pretty high stakes, high visibility programs. And I was used to doing a lot of work on my own as an individual coach. 
So I still will have self-limiting beliefs that maybe I'm not living up to the standards or my colleagues are getting it faster. What's the matter with me? Or if someone doesn't love the content in a program, why don't they like it? Is it me? Is it the content? So I'll always kind of personalize it. So again, once I've done this work, I'll listen and I'll literally rub my fingers. I'll say, okay, that's my judge talking. That's a big lie. How much am I responsible for people's learning? I can put out the table and set it and give everyone the conditions and support them and coach them. But ultimately people are at choice, right? The free will. And I'll do a lot of exploration now. Like, why am I thinking this way? What is creating this? How can I turn this into a gift? If something doesn't go right, people don't like the pro, you know, something happens, I get some feedback. Okay, there's a gift there. How am I going to turn it into a gift? How can I be curious? So I've been leaning into a lot more curiosity about the situation, about the program, about any of the technical pieces, but also about myself. Is there something, if I didn't do something, how can I get better? And instead of beating myself up, my coach, Shazad Shanin describes it as it's like it's a 24-hour color commentator, like at a sports event talking, and this is this and this and this. At least I want to quiet that. And say, ah, let me get curious. Let me lean into it. So I would say, if you want to start to quiet those self-limiting beliefs, at least get curious. What are the patterns? When is it showing up? Is it when I'm tired? Is it with a certain person? And what is making my little misjudge go crazy? And that curiosity helps a lot. And then I'll realize, nope, everything is good. Everything is good. It's just the judge. Thank you for that. All right. Are you ready for quick questions? Oh, sure. This is fun. Awesome. Okay. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is? Being kind, being curious, being with my family, making a difference, helping others, and embodying the sage person I am. Love that. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? You take the shot and goal. Bam. What is something people would be surprised to know about you? Well, you know, I'm a nerd. (laughs) I love my brain's my hobby. Okay, something, I'll do something personal and fun and then something a little bit more serious. So the reason I got into brain science and all of this stuff is that I was a fairly young orphan. I lost my parents at a young age and I was grieving and I have used all of these techniques to help me live in my parents' memory Uh and move forward. So that's one. Uh, A fun fact, I'm a singer. I love to read, but I'm training to be a tea sommelier. And that's a thing, like a wine sommelier, but for tea. I'm a hobby winemaker. So there we go. You can make tea. I can make wine. We can have a party. I love it. (laughs) All right. What's your favorite go-to movie? Uh, School of Rock by Jack Black. I love that movie. All right. You said you're a singer. So here's the next one. What's your go-to song? Oh, Rosie, that's not fair. I have a lot of music in my family in my background. My go-to song, oh, that's like, which is my favorite child. Oh, gosh. I'd probably go to classical just the most because that's what I grew up with. But I would say, you know, just let it be. Let life be and just be at peace. It would be what I'm listening to a lot now. All right. What's something you can't live without? Well, I would say my family my loved ones, and my two dogs, (laughs) and chocolate and tea. (laughs) 
I, didn't, I, I I'm sorry, I cheated on that. That's all right. It's all right. All right. What is something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? What makes my heart happy is I do a daily meditation practice, which is really important. I'm a high achiever and I'm a type A go go, but that's important. Getting outside every day and I have a gratitude practice at night. I'm always living in gratitude. Gratitude's a superpower. It is. It is. I love that. I love that you model that too. And last but not least, and the quick questions, what are you grateful for right now? Oh, this time with you, having a chance to be with your listeners, being able to share with like-minded people who are curious, who are learners, who want to make the world a better place, want to make the workplaces and our leaders better. So for me, being able to talk about the brain, it brings me, it makes my heart so happy. Well, geeking out with you on the brain makes my heart happy too. So there we go. So in closing, Wendy, I would love to know if you could challenge leaders everywhere to practice this one behavior that would create more human workplaces and equip everyone to show up as a leader, what would that be? Strengthen your mental fitness, take care of your brain, learn about your brain, and really move towards life to have that optimal cognitive resiliency. What are you going to do in this space? How are you going to keep learning and, and keep rewiring your brain to have more empathy, kindness, creativity? You have to do the work. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. To learn more, head over to peopleforwardnetwork.com and, of course, hit that follow button.